So we are in the book of Acts, for those of you who are visiting. As Kath said, it's so nice to have you guys here. Um, I see a couple of unfamiliar faces. Wonderful to have you. Please feel at home. Kick off your shoes. Stay for a free cappuccino. And so on, you know. Okay, don't kick off your shoes. All right, if you want. Uh, but we are preaching through the book of Acts, um, and we are today in Acts chapter 18. Last week we looked briefly as, as, as Paul entered Athens and Greece, um, uh, kind of a relatively small city at that time, but, uh, but filled with idols, a sea of idols, the word of God, actually, the scripture says. And he, as a, as a good Jewish young man, was very offended by this because the second commandment says, don't make any idols in front of me. And everywhere Paul looked were idols. And he went to the, to the, to the, to the synagogue first, and then he also went to the, to the marketplace, the place, the place where um, the, the, typical, the typical Athen person would sit around and philosophize and do nothing else. actually says that in Scripture, in chapter 17. They do nothing but sit around and philosophize. And so it was an academic, it was an intellectual society. And as Paul starts with Abram in the synagogue, when he gets to, the, to, to Mars Hill, he, he starts with the God of the creation. And uh, incredible book. If you haven't read the book of Acts, oh, let me tell you, read it. It's, it's phenomenal. And uh, so today we are in chapter 18, which is just the progression of the story. Paul is now already on his third missionary journey through the Middle East, uh, through the Mediterranean. And um, it's, beautifully, it's beautifully written by, by Luke, one of his close friends, in the book of Acts, as Luke writes to Theopolis, one of his mates, uh, the accounts, the acts of the apostles, or the acts of Jesus Christ, or the acts of the Holy Spirit. So that's why it's called the book of Acts, right? And so here we are in chapter 18. So are you ready? Yeah. All right. Let's read it together. I just want to say, okay, there's a, I'm going to do, what I'm going to do is, in book, in, before we read it, let me just preface this. I'm going to try and speak as slowly as I can, okay? So don't judge me. But it's going to be quick. So I want you to pay attention, all right? I'm going to do an historical overview of the two cities that Paul visits in the book of Acts chapter 18, and then I'm going to zone right out and speak to you from my heart what I feel the Lord is saying to us as a church, uh, in particular about Acts chapter 18. This morning I was so blessed when Tom prayed, God, would you take the word today and personalize it for every believer? Where's Tom? There he is. And, uh, and uh, it, was so, it was so on my heart, and so that's what I want to do. History? background, and then what I feel the Lord is saying to us as a church. We cool? All right. Acts chapter 18. <sighs> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a, a, a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered that all the Jews should leave Rome. So, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to the preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. What a description. Can you imagine? He went to the house of Eros and Joel, worshippers of God. 
cool, eh? Um, verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. That is a big deal. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and through Paul's persuasive talk every day in the synagogue, because that was his thing to do, as we know, as we've seen through Acts, it's literally his, his, his pattern. He gets to a new town. Where does he go? To the synagogue. And he there persuaded the ruler, the leader of the synagogue, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's definitely a momentum. And he believed and, he was, and, and, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. He said to him, don't be afraid. Please say it with me. Don't be afraid. Please say it with me, everybody. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God while Galileo was the proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they turned to Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off as a Sencria, what? What does that say? Off at Sencria. It's a, it's a cool barbershop. Because <laughs> of a vow. <laughs> if you're a barber, you should call your shops Sencria. Because of the vow that he had taken. And they arrived at, the, um, at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail for Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galilee, uh, Galatia and Prigia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of Scripture. Pay attention to Apollos. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, this is the same Apollos in 1 Corinthians when there was a dispute in the church and they were following all kinds of guys that had come through Corinth. One was saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, the same Apollos. He was a fervent preacher of the gospel, but he only knew up to the baptism of John, which was the baptism of repentance. This doesn't, it's just cool facts here. And so Priscilla and Aquila were just like, so in the, 
yeah, anyway, they took him home and they taught him the, the full picture. They, they engaged him more, which really is the procession of the baptism of, 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 of repentance through, through, through baptism, the, 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 the gospel, the, 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 what do they call it, the, the repentance of John to introducing Apollos to the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely beautiful. So when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was in great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scripture that Jesus was the Christ. Wow. El, please give me a cup of water, please. So here is Paul is in Corinth. Corinth is a beautiful city. It's still there today. You can go and see it. There is a wealth of beautiful, pure, historic coolness about the, book of Cor- about the, the city of Corinth. And it was, it was a mega trade city. It was 20 times literally bigger than Athens. And it was known for its architecture, for its utter debauched living, and for high competitive sport. It's interesting, isn't it? The soccer team in Corinth was incredible. Thanks, bro. But they still would have lost to our boys on Friday night. <laughs> Guys, Friday nights are so much fun. You should come. We play either 9 or 10 o'clock. Okay, that's sorry. Let me just get that. I'm actually preaching a bit about distraction later on. That's my, my ADD brain. The city's slogan of Corinth was, not every fellow can afford a trip to Corinth because prostitution was a religious act in Corinth. And, 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 and it came at a high price, at a high tax. So Corinth was known for being wild and reckless. And people lived utter debauched lives in the city of Corinth. And the temple of Aphrodite, which means sexual passion, was there. And it had a staff of 1,000 women who were priest, priestly prostitutes in this temple. And that was the Mecca, the center of the city of Corinth. Figure that. That's hectic. Hence Paul's very clear instruction to how the church should function in the city of Corinth later on in the book of Corinthians. Now Paul was a tent maker. He grew up. Paul was from what city? Town. Paul of Tarsus. Very nice, Grandma. And uh, in the province of Cilicia. Cilicia had a, had a, had a farming pop- community and they farmed goats. This is just trivia. Okay? This is Bible nerd stuff. And they farmed goats, in particular the goats that were from Cilicia. The Cilician goats were uh, black-haired, thick-haired goats, and they'd shave them, and they would weave, and they would make tents out of that. And that's why Paul was a tent maker. But Paul's tent making thing was not just tents, he was actually more of a leather worker. So he made everything that was leather and tents, and that was his job. And so for those who are aspiring to plant a church, in the near future, or in the, or in the distant future, whenever, and let me just say you're never too old to plant a church, let me just encourage you to become a tent maker. Okay? And go to Cilicia, the tickets are about 700 bucks, and learn how to weave black, no, I'm joking. Tent making is just in our modern day term, a metaphor for having a part-time job to facilitate the kingdom and the rule of God wherever you go. And so the, the, the mindset, the mentality of, of old John Wesley is coming back into the church where every believer is a priest and every believer is responsible to make way and Paul, as a result of it, is described 
in Scripture as a man with a high work ethic. And I don't think that when we get to heaven one day, we're all going to lie in hammocks drinking pina coladas. I think the rule of heaven as it descends in this place will create for us many good works, which is prepared for us in advance for us to do. So I don't think work will ever stop. I'm not talking about work being the central, very defining thing of our culture today and your identity, that if your work and your position and your job is challenged, that your whole identity falls apart. That's idolatry. But work will never stop. And so Paul had a work ethic. And so wherever he went, he did what he found his hands to do, and particularly in this trade. And typically in the synagogues, people with different uh, different, uh, levels would sit together. The lawyers would sit there. The carpenters would sit there. You know, the professional soccer players in Corinth would sit there. You know, and the tent makers would sit there. So Paul, Aquila and Priscilla probably met them in the synagogue. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked there. So here he is. He's a tent maker. He has good work ethic. And he is in Corinth. And, and then there's some amazing scriptures here in verse 9. It says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid. So I want to diverse a little bit quickly about don't, being, don't be afraid. Every time an angel appeared to a human being in Scripture, the first thing he said was don't be afraid. Okay? Because people were afraid. Okay? Angels, were, angels were, 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 fear, fear, were fearful. What's the word? They were intimidating, and so people were afraid. Yeah. So nobody will say to somebody don't be afraid if they don't know that they are afraid. And so for me, if you, if you read Scripture, you have this the grace of God, the grace of God, which doesn't only mean the unmerited favor of God, it actually means God's enabling power for us to do and to live in such a way that His rule and His reign comes through our lives. That's a more thorough, rounded perspective, in my opinion, of the word grace. And we need the grace of God for us to live in a world that is so diametrically opposed to that of the kingdom. It's literally upside down, as you can see in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. Everybody with me? I hope I'm not becoming too historic here because I really want you to hear the thread. And so there is this divine paradox throughout Scripture. And as you read Scripture, you will see it. The, The reality of Jesus coming full of grace and truth. And if you overdevelop one of those, this is one example of maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know. And so we need, here is the angel appearing to, to, to Paul, saying to him, don't fear, because Paul was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid of being beaten up in this debauched city. And so we live today in a world where we are still intimidated by the faces of those around us. And I'm going to tie that in later on. But remember what I just said to you. It's called the divine paradox. If either one of those two are overemphasized, then we go into error because error is just truth that's overdeveloped. So it's grace and truth. If we all grace at, at the expense of truth, we will live lives that become super insipid. Compromise. If we all truth and we have no, no grace, then we won't have the strength to be able to walk in this truth that God's called us to. And we will literally burn out and become religious zealots. And we will be equally useless in society. And this whole story, this whole book, And this particularly, this chapter, is the story, it's the narrative of a man who said yes. Remember, he was a Jew, he's a Jew. He he knows the scripture, can memorize and quote the first five books of the Bible. And this is the story of what happened to his life when he encountered Jesus the Messiah. And what is that which happened to him? He changed 
from a man who followed the rules to a man who became the mission. He doesn't go on missions. He is the mission. And you and I today are that. We are the mission. We are the salt. We are the light. We don't go and try and be light and try and be salt. You don't say to a light, hey guys, can you shine? The reality is when you turn it on, darkness goes. It's a simple scientific reality. Same with us. We are those who are called by Jesus and by the Spirit of Jesus to live lives on mission. And I believe with all my heart that if we have a clearly defined mission, and as you just simply read through the book of Acts, the mission of Jesus for your life today, personally and corporately, becomes clearer and more and more clearly defined. And as that becomes more and more clearly defined, somehow everything else finds its perspective behind the mission. So we never have to substitute for a program. Like Tozer said back in the 50s. Wow, somehow mission has been replaced by a thing called program. I read it on Twitter this morning at 5.45. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's good. So when we read Acts, when we talk about Acts, when we reason about Acts, we must know this is the story of a man who is on a mission. And that's how we should assimilate it into our life. Not something or someone that we can now copycat. Because your mission is different to Paul's and Corinth. Your mission's in Milton, Georgetown, Oakville, Mississauga, Toronto, wherever you're from. That's your mission. That's your mission field. And God will contextualize you in your life if you open to the Spirit of God, the grace of God, which empowers you to live this mission. There's no other way. There is no other way. We need the grace of God so much to be able to live this truth. And the world is desperate for that. They love that. Young woman, if you want to be very attractive, but in a pure way, follow Jesus with all your heart. Men will go, wow, I want that. What, what is that? No perversion. Pure. Young men, same thing. Anyway, that was an interesting diversion. And then Paul arrives in Ephesians, of Ephesus. Ephesus has about 250,000 people. It also has a major temple, the Temple of Diana. It's massive. It's humongous. It's, parts of it are still standing today. And in comparison to the temple in, in, in Athens, a temple in Athens looks like a little, small little building. And that in itself is massive and grandiose if you see the temple to Diana in Ephesus. <coughs> and as you read through Acts as well, you will find a better <coughs> perception or concept of the, of the, of the, the subsequent, book, subsequent letters that Paul writes to all these churches that he plants and falls so deeply in love with, the book to the Corinthians. The, the second letter to the Corinthians, the book to the Ephesians. And later on, as he ends up in Rome, which is really literally his goal from the word go, he writes this passionate book to Rome. Uh, although other people say it was not Paul who wrote that, but um, and someone else. But uh, nevertheless, Diana was the guardian of the hunt. She was the protector of the young girls, ironically. And Paul makes Ephesus kind of into his new home base. He stays at Ephesus and this is the account of Paul's life as he engages the, as, uh, to, live, uh, to live on mission for the glory of the gospel in, um, and in, in Ephesus. And um, it's, here, it's here in Ephesus um, where his mission's, mission becomes even more clear. And um, we know that Paul later on in his life was actually beheaded. Um, and some scholars believe it's related to his stance that he took uh, in Ephesus, um, he, they chopped his head off, Paul, the apostle. He was a follower of Jesus. Um, and so sometimes we go, um, 
And so, so now I want to bring it in a little bit and, and say to you that this missional call that is on our life as a church, okay, it is definitely going to d- define us. And it's not when we go to Mexico that the, the, the Spirit of God moves powerfully through us and the gifts of power moves powerfully through us. And as we get to Pearson, there's a special box for us to put all our gifts of supernatural ministry into so we can come back into the mundane. Please, are you listening to me? This is crucial that we know and we are convinced that we live here in this city, in this place, because God is sovereign over geography and time. Another thing that was prayed this morning downstairs. And that he orchestrated for you to be in such a place. And the greatest crying shame and saddest thing ever would be that you are just a participatory Christian. And that happens when we ignore mission and we overemphasize experience and encounter. You cannot read the book of Acts without seeing mission, without the Spirit of God, which is one of the greatest purposes of the Spirit of God. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction to men, which means an inner desire for transformation so that we turn, pivot. The word's actually pivot. So we pivot towards the Father and are changed by the Father, not by our efforts, not by our programs. Not by participating corporately with others, but by individually pivoting towards the Father. The story of Paul's life. So, we don't check in our gifts. Those gifts are for here and for now. And Paul says, stir on the gifts. Stir the gifts up that are within you, to a young Timothy, that you received when I lay my hands on you. So the gifts of the Spirit of God, are some, it's an impartational reality. And it's also something that you can directly receive from God if you desire it. Above all, he says, desire the gift of prophecy. And so, so in this world that we live in, in a time and place where it seems uh, disproportionately hard to talk to people about Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but I do. I do find that. Lindsay was telling me, can I tell them about the guy? She was telling me uh, after soccer on Friday, we all went to the symposium for chicken wings. You guys should come. It's great. Um, and we were talking, and she said that she engaged the guy in the cafeteria of the university. She sat down next to him and asked him, hi, how are you? He said, fine. Uh, and then she asked him another question, and he kind of frowned. And he's like, yes or no? And then after the third question, he says, like, what is this, like a survey or something? <laughs> <laughs> and I find, it so, I find it so funny because in, in, uh, in her wonderful desire to serve Jesus and her intentionality of being missional, she just engaged someone with questions. Questions are great, guys. But I thought of it back in back in my, in, my, in my younger years as a young man, where we would literally, I don't know, you could sing any rock song, you could do anything you want, and somehow people would just get saved. There was a, there was a, there was a different spiritual atmosphere. And I'm not longing back for those days. Those days were incredible. It was so beyond us. We did nothing. Our greatest problem was to keep up with the growth in churches. And we did so little to that. In our immaturity, God's grace and his hand was so much upon us. And he moved in power. But friends, please hear me. I believe in this moment of time and history where we are here, the Holy Spirit is speaking clearly to us that we are plowing the soil, the ground. We are planting seeds whose fruit we might never eat in our lifetime. We are doing that. We are preparing a generation for an encounter with the power of the Spirit. We definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, is doing that. And it is disproportionately difficult to share the gospel with people today. And I want to just briefly go there in the context of Paul being in two cities, Corinth 
and Ephesus so that we can also more relate with them and not just read it. There's a great, there's a great story that's unfolding here. Amen. Are you with me? If you're feeling sleepy, wake yourself up. You don't want to miss this. <laughs> um, I think one of the reasons why it's difficult or disproportionately difficult to share Jesus with people is because of, we live in a post-Christian world. Now, I don't want to go down that route because some people say, is there anything else you know but that? But, but the, and there is. But I do believe that we need to find our proper context in this world so that we can communicate the gospel well, live the gospel well. All right? And so there is this, there is, in the post-Christian mind, um, uh, there's a core, core resistance to a strong meta-narrative. And it's a, it's a subconscious worldview that had been created in us over, over centuries. Okay? Nobody knows specifically why we think like we think sometimes. But, we, but nevertheless, we do. First World War happened. There was an absolute disaster on earth. It was terrible. Because somebody stood up and said, I know what to do. And everybody doesn't know what to do. Let me precede my statement of faith by violence and oppression. Second World War happened, and then we created the United Nations because we realized, as human beings, this could never happen again, and then plummeted us into a Cold War. And as a result, we live in a day and an age where if you stand up and say, guys, listen to me, I know the way, the truth, and the life, the postmodern mind goes, beep, 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 back off, back off. You are no longer weird. You have now become an actual threat. So if we claim to have the ultimate solution to the world's problems, the executed follow-up to that claim in the minds of those who do not know Jesus and has no context of church, the post-Christian mind, they see imminent violence. And as a result, they threw the truth out to embrace the, the grace and uh, as a result will create a God or go to the God shop and buy a God that suits their ideology and their lifestyle. Do you hear me? That's why we cannot, or we should not, compromise the truth. You lose your testimony. You lose your authority. You lose your power. You lose. You just lose. And you have become subject to a pervasive culture that will fry you like a frog in a pot if you know that analogy. Charles Taylor is a philosopher and a theologian. Um, he, he speaks about um, a time, it's called sub, subtraction stories, where science obliterated faith. And he tells the story of a tribe that lived on, on a river with, behind a mountain. I heard this from uh, one of John Tyson's books. And he, and he tells the story that this tribe, this is many, many years ago when, when, when man believed more myth- mythologically than scientifically, okay? And he's not playing one off against the other only to, to, or only to create a paradigm within our thinking or an awareness of how people think in our day to day. So they lived next to a river. The wind would blow through the forest. They'd all be happy and they'd play and then autumn would come. And so what they thought is the sun would disappear so they need to make a sacrifice to the gods so the sun would come back. So they would choose a virgin, sacrifice the virgin. But they wouldn't sacrifice virgins from their own tribe, so tribal warfare would ensue. 
because they'd steal virgins from other tribes. One year, spring didn't come. So they thought, maybe the gods are hungrier now, so we need to sacrifice two. So tribal, tribal war escalated. They got a second virgin, sacrificed her. Sun still didn't come. Third year, third, third virgin was sacrificed. Massive war. The forest was destroyed. And then the, and then the sun came back. The spring came. In the, words of, in the words of Charles Taylor, it was basically just a polar vortex and science was behind it all. And so we take the baby with the bathwater, we throw it out and we say science is the enemy of a creational God. That's the world we live in. If you don't know that, your worldview would, would like, a, like, a, like a rugby player coming in from the side of a scrum, would be ineffective. And so the belief is withered, and science is real. And if you talk about anything that's mystical, not mythical, but anything that is not predictable, anything that we can put our faith and our hope and our trust in based on the character of a loving God that we know it, the scientists will say, oh, come on, guys, please grow up. (laughs) Come on, really? These guys really believe that? You believe he's coming back? Wow, he's gone. He left us here. Nietzsche, sort it out for yourselves. Yet, ironically, one of the greatest atheistic philosophers at the end of his days when he went senile quoted John 3.16 non-stop. Because his granny taught it to him when he was a child. And when he was out of control and he had no control over his only thing that his brain could regurgitate was the living word of God. And he said God is dead. He coined the phrase. Nietzsche. Science snuffed it out. And then we live in an age of, of authenticity. Don't know if you guys have heard it. Oh, guys, whatever it is, I've heard it, particularly from millennials. It's just got to be authentic, man. It's got to be real. Just trust your heart, follow your heart. Oh, my gosh. Don't do that. (laughs) You can do a lot of things. But please, don't follow your heart. (laughs) Jeremiah says, the wicked and deceptive above all things. What? Your heart? Oh, my gosh. Really? I was just following my heart. I'm I'm going to Patagonia. I'm going to surf in Ireland. I'm just following my heart. No, no. Go to Patagonia, but you go on mission because that's who you are as a follower of Jesus. Go to the coast of Ireland and surf. If you make it, it's very cold, but still go on mission. It's not something you choose to even do. It's just the awareness of what you carry inside you. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And we live in this age of authenticity. The goal of the culture is to maximize opportunities for individualization of our expressions. That's the goal of our society. Just give me an opportunity. I want to just be myself. I'm a peacock. Let me fly. (laughs) I'm so glad you guys know that movie. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's me, me, the individual. And it's so ironic because it is about the individual. We are all in this together but alone. And I'll sum it up at the end and you'll see what I mean by that. All of our laws are designed towards individualism. And that's the society we live. Are you ready to contextualize the gospel? Or are you just telling people, man, all you need is one encounter with Jesus? That's the truth. But what then? Will you walk with them? Will you know how to walk with them? And it's so big. When our kids come home and say, the biology teacher says, uh, evolution is cool. No, it's not. They're going to hell. Thank you for your comments. Let's move on. No, no. Stop. We have to engage the culture there. Why? Because that's where it is. That's where it is. We're not flaky. We're not insecure. We're not afraid because our God is good. Everything we do is rooted in that fundamental reality. 
So if we go through the valley, we know he's good. If we, if we, we know he's good. No matter what we face, we know he's good. And then this, uh, sorry, let me compose myself quickly. Then this pluralism. I go to gym. I haven't been to gym for a very long time, as you can see. But at gym, I met a couple of mates over, over the time that I was there. One guy is from uh, Jamaica. I love this guy so much. I've never in my life heard anyone perfect the craft of cuss words like this guy. Okay? And my goal is not to tell anyone that I lead a church or anything like that. Because then, zunk, zunk, everything closes down for me. So I just, I just look at him and smile and... His name is Dennis. He's a bus driver for the Go Go guys. He's humongous. If you get in the bus and there's a Jamaican guy with arms the size of your waist, it's probably Dennis. Anyway, I love Dennis. I love, love Dennis. I mean, I see him maybe 10, 10 minutes a, a week, but he comes over to me and we chat about all kinds of things. He first starts with Donald Trump, and then from there, who knows where we go. <laughs> but it, it crossed my mind one day, Crossed my mind one day. You know, when, when this guy ran for, ran for the, the guy, please forgive me, I don't mean no disrespect, the guy who ran for parliament now against um, the, 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 the sick guy. What's his name? Singh. Yes. What a nice looking guy. Genuinely, what a nice looking guy. We live in an age of plurality where if it doesn't cross your mind, it should cross your mind, even if just for the sake of those whose minds it is crossing that are not Christians. How are all these guys going to end up in hell? Because that's how our society thinks. And please, at that moment, do not develop your own God. My God would never, oh my God. When I hear those words, I get nervous. Oh my God would never do, my God, oh my God. If you say my God would never, you probably made that God up. You'll probably make your own God up. That's why when we approach the scripture... We come to it with bowed knees. We come to it with humble hearts. We see what it says with the intention to take it and to apply it to our lives with one purpose. One purpose, not to make us better, but to glorify Him. So when it's tough and you want it so bad, but God says, no, you can't have that now. We trust His goodness because everything we do is rooted in His fundamental goodness. And we say no Because saying yes to Jesus, like Tom said down in the basement this morning, means automatically saying no to much of our pervasive culture who bombards our thinking day and night. Day and night. The age of authenticity. Let me have my own way. Pluralism. Lots of people are so cool. In the words of uh, Hudson Taylor, um, I can't exactly quote it, We have a responsibility to those who do not know Jesus. We have a responsibility to them. So, if we live indifferent of that, what sense of mission can ever exude from our lives? We have a responsibility. It's it's not a driving force. It's a compelling love, as Paul describes it. The love of God. And therefore, if you're struggling here, you should probably go down first, or up first. <laughs> up first. You know I mean? And then, uh, uh, privatization of our faith. And, and I got this from, from John Tyson, the privatization of your faith. And I'm going to be very quick. I'm almost done. Everybody still cool? Yeah. Okay. If you're not cool, we can get you a cappuccino. So, 
Too emphatic and moves from public to private, from the center to the outskirts. Remember there was a day, there was a time, and we're not going backwards to previous revivals. So if you've developed and attached yourself to an ecclesiology that was attached to a previous revival, friends, I want to warn you right now, you will be disappointed into the future if you're longing back to the revival and the moves of God of old. Because God says, pilgrim with me, there's new, there's more. There's more. And with that, I must say, it's very much wrapped up in our responsibility to a world that does not know the true Jesus Christ, for whom you and I are responsible. How we respond in times of adversity, how we respond when we, when, when we feel like we're in the darkest night of the soul. We persevere. Privatizing. So we don't want to remove faith from the centrality of our society. We want to be those who bring it into the middle. Faith not on the outskirts. It moves from being seen as strange to now being seen as a threat. Society used to tolerate it, but now it seems to almost persecute faith. All of this produces in Paul angst, anxiety, and fear. Paul, the great apostle. And then the angel appears to him and said, don't leave. And that doesn't even begin to talk about our personal angst. Sin. You know the number one contributor to stress in your life is missing the point, which is the meaning of the word sin. Not the point like some weird point, God's point. What is God's purpose? What's God's purpose for the city? And therefore, what's God's purpose for you and his purpose for the city? Again, someone prayed it downstairs. Lord, show us how we can partner with what you are already busy with in Milton, Mississauga, Oakville, Georgetown, and to the uttermost parts of the world. If you say yes to God, your heart would pivot towards Him, your affections awaken, your intimacy becomes real. You say no to the things that are contrary to the things of the kingdom of God for one purpose, so you could be effective in the mission. That's it. That's the only reason why. Some of it's painful, but you trust God more. You put God more. You lift Him up. We don't elevate Him. If we sing, we lift you up, it doesn't lift Him up. It encourages us to live out there and by living, because the mission's clearly defined, his name is lifted up. Sin, envy, comparison. They should call Instagram comparison. That's what they should call it. Money. God can't use me. It's the individualization of our, whatever that is, of our faith. God can't use me, surely. The fear of man. What would people think of me? Well done, Lindsay, for taking someone on Point blank. Distraction. I was reading the Bible this morning. It's night. It's dark. I was up at five. And I got a message from a friend of mine while I was reading Acts 18. And 20 minutes later, <laughs> I realized, wow, I've been totally distracted. And all of our phones are, does anybody still have a normal Bible like me? And so these mediums of distraction, these are all things that create such angst in us. Bad theology, oh, like everybody's going to heaven. The Bible doesn't mean that. Or, uh, you know, all those kind of things. Those things are, bring great angst to our lives. Christian cultural paradigms, like, you know, like, like shutting people down. My body's changing. Young men say to me, uh, I feel like I'm burning up. Oh, sex is bad, don't do that. 
you know, stuff like that. But thanks for sharing, but sex is bad. Don't do that. Not, not any further development of that. What about science? Oh, science is bad. God is good. Don't, you know, don't trust science. Other religions, they're obviously all wrong. We're right. They're wrong. We're right. Uh, and what about the Bible? Yeah, read it. Read as much as you can. Read the Bible. And we go on and on and on with this, this shallow, superficial spirituality that produces nothing, not only for us, but for the next generation. And inadvertently, or subconsciously, we literally, without anyone telling us what to do, we turn back to the, pre, the, the, the last move of God, and we try and reenact the last move of God, and we spend all our energy and our resources in reenacting the last move of God. Friends, God is moving forward, and we must go with Him. And don't disqualify yourself, thinking, I'm not good enough. God, one thing I know, because I'm standing here, God uses people. God uses people. It's amazing. Who was saying just the other day about the guy on the donkey and the donkey said, there's an angel in front of you. Oh, you're so stupid. You cannot see the angel. And it's a worn out metaphor, but literally if God could speak through an angel, he could speak through you and me. We have a mission. We need to know our city. We need to know our culture. We need to know the paradigms of people's thinking and approach. We need to know and be sure of the power of the presence of Jesus and that it's in you. The fullness of God dwells within us. Woo! Somebody say, hallelujah. So, so Paul has this desire and at the same time an angst, an anxiety. Because it's already his third journey. He must be a little bit tired by now. But I want to say this. Faith can flourish literally everywhere. Faith can flourish literally everywhere. There's no place that your faith in the expression of your loving God, the God that you have a love relationship with, He's not a tyrant. He is a lover, not a fighter. He is against violence. He went to the cross because we demanded that. But He is the creator of all things and He is coming back as the judge. He is, I promise you. Please believe me. It's in Scripture. He will judge the living and the dead and we will stand before him individually to give an account of every word that came out of our mouth. And if that does not compel us into a place on our knees where we cry out for more of his spirit, more of his grace, then I have nothing else. So faith can flourish in every... David, uh, who's the guy in the lion's den? Daniel. Daniel was where? It was a Babylon. It was Babylon, right? He was a slave. He was a captive in Babylon. And... And the reason why they created the lion's den because, because Daniel would not stop bowing to the east. Do you know that they'd been in bondage? I think up at that point, at that point, um, I can definitely say it was about 100 years Israel had already been in bondage. Go and, go and check it out and, and, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Nevertheless, he'd been in bondage for a long time. But still, within him, within himself, in his heart, he cultivated the culture of the Jew. He was in slavery, but he bowed to the, to, to the, out of his window and worshipped God. How many times a day? Three times a day. As a result, a lion's den was created. He's like, guys, let me tell you about this thing called prayer. Prayer, the cultivation of my personal life with Jesus, with God. Let me tell you about this. Threw him in the lion's den, you know what happened. The lions just slept on his chest like Maui and lay there and crawled around Daniel. I can just imagine. must have been awesome. Real valiant man. And then he got out. Everybody chowed everybody else. 
And then they said, bow to the king. No, we're not going to bow. Well, we're going to throw you in the furnace. Well, even if you do, even if our God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow. Threw them in the furnace, four instead of three in the furnace. Those who threw them in burned to death. Faith prevails in every circumstance. If our objective is to be clinical and to live as unoffensive in the world, and I'm not talking about people going out to offend people. If you're living naturally in pursuit of Jesus, your life will naturally be supernatural. And all the gifts of the Spirit of God, as it says in Scripture, is available to you. Therefore, you can look in someone's eyes, and I believe with all my heart, if you're serious and you love Jesus and it's from a place of compelling love, God will show you the things of that man's heart. Because 1 Corinthians says that. Who knows the secrets of man's heart except the Spirit of man? And who knows the secret of God's heart except the Spirit of God? Yet God chooses to put His Spirit inside us. Why? So we would know what He sees about people. The futility of holding on to unforgiveness and it's, it's deadly robs us of our eternal destiny, our mission, our goal. Daniel built an internal culture living in bondage. He's still living as a Jew, a man of God. Cultivate the culture in your heart. And then next, you're not the Messiah. Relaxed. Just relax. You're not the Messiah. Relax. I know it sounds ironic. I try to do that. So live on mission, cultivate the culture, but also relax. You're not the Messiah. Jesus is. And if you take Jesus' model, it's amazing. In the middle of a storm, everybody's like, oh my God, we're going to die. It's all over. Ah, where's Jesus? He's sleeping. Jesus, what? Don't you care about us? Oh, sorry, guys. Sorry. Be still. He's the Messiah. By grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. He's the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. So relax. God's grace. It's God's grace. It's not our show. And so lastly, I want to read. Frank, please come read for me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay, this is Paul, just to give you a context. Paul is in Corinth. From this short trip in Corinth, um, Paul, Paul writes this, Amazing peace from the short trip in this church in Corinth. Okay? And when all is said and done, this is the money right here. 1 Corinthians 13. Can you see it? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Father, we thank you that... We thank you for your word, particularly scriptures like, in that day, <laughs> you will say, I never knew you. And, you and, we will, and we might say, yeah, but in your name we did this, that, and the next thing. And still you will say, I never knew you. And then Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 13 with, in that day we will be fully known. Oh, what a God. You're so amazing. And we thank you for your word. And we want you to know us, God. We don't want to be those who frolic on the edges. We want those not to be over, over emphatic and religious. We just want to follow you, Jesus. And we thank you for the cross and that you are the good shepherd. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Please stay for a coffee.